It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Welcome to Talent Talk Radio, and uh, happy Tuesday to everyone who's tuning in. Talent Talk really, as we kind of get into every every week, is really about bringing inspiring leaders and talking about events and things that, that have happened maybe this week or this month or this year. And so this show is really designed to help give you an opportunity to listen in on our dialogue, talk about interesting topics around talent, and hopefully give you something that you can use uh, in your own career in a positive way down the road or maybe even later today. So Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And as I already mentioned, you can uh, access us via our podcast. Uh, we found on iTunes, on iHeartRadio. We've massive a huge following. Over 300,000 of you came in last week and tune into one of the podcasts or iHeartRadio feeds. And a big thank you to everyone who's uh, listening, sharing, and, and talking about the show really is what keeps us going, keeps us uh, showing up here every Tuesday to have these great conversations. So if you have a question for one of my guests, uh, you can submit them uh, here via Twitter uh, on at people G2. You can use the hashtag talent talk. Uh, my producer, Mike, can uh, feed me uh, in the best questions and we can try to work them into the show. But let's go ahead and get to today's guests. Uh, my first guest will be uh, Joe uh, Gerstan. He's a diversity and inclusion speaker and author and advisor. And then we'll have uh, Wally Hawk, uh, employee engagement expert with Optimum Leadership. And Wally will be kind of join me in the second half of the show after we have a little commercial break. But let's go ahead and get to our first guest. Uh, Joe, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, and uh, you know, kind of a little bit more about you. Yeah, so I do um, diversity and inclusion work, and, and I've been doing this work for about 15 years now. I, I, I guess I found it kind of by accident, but once I found it, I, I kind of uh, uh, felt like I'd found the work that I was supposed to do. And, and I originally did the work internally. I did it as an internal practitioner. I guess my last, uh, my last real job was uh, I led the diversity and inclusion efforts for um, a regional health care system and focused on workforce diversity and having an inclusive organizational culture and delivering culturally competent care. But um, for the past nine years, almost nine years, I've been doing this work externally. And so help organizations, leaders, teams, communities uh, find some new clarity around this set of issues and, and uh, put some practices in place and 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 realize some benefits. Uh, so most of what I most of what I get paid to do is, is speaking in one way or another. I speak at a lot of conferences, uh, and I also go into... Uh, organizational clients and do presentations and workshops and, and and some advising and consulting as well. So I know your focus is in your kind of keynote addresses and really bettering the, the future of a company. So are there particular things that 
leadership should be looking at or maybe that you think that they're really looking to hear as it relates to your topics and expertise? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the fairly consistent needs that, that I see across industry and across geography is, is uh, as more and more organizations, as more and more leaders are starting to get serious about inclusion, um, they're looking for some clarity on, on what that actually is and what to do and what to measure. We, we've been saying nice things about inclusion for a while. It's a, it's a, it's a very popular word. But, but one of the interesting things that I find is that if you go into organizations, you'll pretty consistently find that in most organizations, even organizations that are getting trophies for diversity inclusion work, inclusion is a pretty vague, abstract idea. If you ask 10 people what inclusion is and why it matters, you will probably get 10 different answers, and, and probably seven or eight of them won't make any sense. And so I think one of the things that, that is missing is that the clarity, the, the foundational clarity as to what inclusion means for our organization, and um, and, and when, as long as that clarity is missing, um, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do and what to measure. Um, I think a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders just end up adopting what they consider to be best practices instead of doing things that are specifically relevant to their organization, how they create value in, in their organizational culture. So a, a lot of what I do is, is to help organizations find and leaders find that clarity, get crystal clear on very specifically, very concisely what inclusion means within the context of this organization. Um, and then the conversation around what to do and what to measure gets gets a lot easier. Um, I think, uh, you know, if there's one thing that came to mind uh, in answer to that question, that, that would be it. So, you know, that kind of gets into a little bit, maybe a very broad question, but might go a little bit deeper. And that is, maybe since the time that you began doing this to where you are now, I mean, have the rules of business changed? I mean, how, how we operate and how we think about this, maybe whether or not we think this is important. Uh, how, have those things started to, to really change, or do you feel like you're still kind of, is it still the same battle and you're kind of out there trying to do the same thing you were when you started? No, I, well, I think some of it's probably the same, but I think a lot of things, uh, I think a lot of things have changed. I think, um, uh, I think, you know, technology alone has changed a lot of the rules. I think technology has been pretty consistently disruptive uh, to a lot of industries and a lot of organizations in the past five to ten years, uh, and that's had a pretty big impact. I think the workforce continues to get more diverse and more complex. I think the market continues to get more diverse and more complex. Um, I, so I think there, I, I think there's a number of things that have changed um, uh, just in the past ten or fifteen years, and I think the next ten or fifteen years will probably hold hold even more change. So now that we know that things are maybe sort of different, but and always sort of the same, that seems like how a lot of things are. You talked about that definition of what you know inclusion is or diversity. Can you maybe define that a little bit in your own words of really what does that mean if a company is actively trying to be more diverse and trying to be more inclusive? What does that really mean, uh, in, in your opinion? Yeah, and I, and I think um, language is probably not, you know, the most exciting part of the work for a lot of folks, but I think it's some of the most important work. I think one of the reasons why so many diversity and inclusion initiatives uh, tend to kind of collapse on themselves two or three years down the road is that because I think a lot of times that foundational 
clarity, that common language and logic isn't in place. And so I spend a fair amount of time talking about language. And, and you know, I usually start with the word diversity. That's kind of a that's kind of a good place to start. And 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 that's another example of the same thing. You know, I consistently ask people what that word means to them, and I get a whole bunch of different answers. Some of them positive, some of them negative, but almost none of them. Uh, are in alignment with the actual dictionary definition of the word. Uh, the word itself means difference, but we use it in a lot of, we use it as kind of code to mean a whole bunch of other things. Some people think it means race, and some people think it means gender, and some people think it's about tolerance or respect or affirmative action, and, 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 and those things can certainly all be a part of the larger conversation, but the word itself means difference. That's what the word means. And I think um, making sure that we understand difference um, and how it shows up and how it impacts us is, is kind of an important place uh, to start. Um, and, and, and obviously, there's a lot of different kinds of difference, but that's what the word diversity actually means. It means difference. Uh, when I use the word inclusion, um, I, I think there's kind of a couple of different ways you need to understand that word. I think you need to have some understanding of what the work of inclusion is, and I think you need to have some language and some understanding of what the experience of being included is. I think those are both important things to understand. And when I when I talk about the work of inclusion, um, what I'm what I'm for the most part what I'm talking about is the things that we do to remove barriers to participation and belonging, uh, to full participation and belonging. Whether those barriers are intentional, whether they're unintentional, whether they're implicit or explicit. That's that's the bulk of what I'm talking about with the work of inclusion, and and I think you know beyond that you also you also need to have some language or some framework in your organization for understanding what the experience of being included is. What is what is the objective? If we are investing in inclusion, if we're doing things to be inclusive, uh, how will we know when we get there? What does that experience look like? And 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 you know most organizations and most leaders aren't aren't thinking there yet. Um, and, and again, that's part of what makes it hard for them to figure out what to do and what to measure. If you get clear on what it is that you're going for, uh, what do you want the end result to be? It gets kind of it gets a lot of easier to to kind of build backwards from that and to figure out what kinds of behaviors, what kinds of policies, what kinds of practices lead to this experience um, of being included. One of the things I've always noticed is that companies that seem to be getting it right are having a difference and a diversity in thought, right? Bringing in people who are going to think differently because you can certainly make the argument we're all individually different from one another, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're a diverse company if uh, just just on that fact alone. But I, I sort of so, so I've seen companies be really sort of reward and um, really foster this divergent thought. And mm-hmm. to to not sort of you want people to be aligned with your purpose and where you're headed, but at the same time you don't want them necessarily all be aligned in exactly that there's only one way to do it or one way to right. think um, that that sort of keeps them sharp and on top. So, but yet there that does seem to be a correlation. Um, again, this is just from my observation between those that do that and then you also do get a real diversity in the people in in there. So where they're from, what they look like. Uh, genders specific, all those different things that when you're looking for a uh, difference in in uh, in how you think and how you approach problems, that it's easier to have a more diverse workforce. Have you seen that? I mean, would you agree with that, or am I out, or do you think I'm way off base here? No, I, I think in general I would agree with that. I think there's always exceptions to that rule. I think sure. there are organizations, and I think some of the organizations that do some of this best. 
aren't even talking about it as diversity and inclusion. They're talking about it as innovation or they're talking about it as improvement. But they have a very positive relationship with conflict. They seek out a diversity of perspectives and opinions, um, and they do that very well. And, and I think they get um, a lot better of shared results because of that. And I think, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of perspective, those things are hard to measure. But I think one of the, one of the more accurate indicators of them is diversity of identity. So if you, if you do value in your organization, if you truly value uh, different points of view, different perspectives, different experiences. I, I think it becomes easier for um, people that that do look and think and behave differently to to come into your organization and to fully participate and belong there. I do think there is. It's not a it's not a perfect correlation, but I think there is some correlation there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you've done you know quite a bit of training with and workshops for all different sorts of companies. Certainly, some notable ones would be Wells Fargo and Walmart and Target. So. Do you find that the larger companies are having more issues adapting to the changing needs of a workforce and, and, and customers, or is it fairly consistent across the board regardless of business size? I mean, is it just a struggle for everybody? I, I think the struggle – I think it is a struggle for everybody. I think the struggle is a little bit different. I think uh, larger organizations oftentimes will have – you know, a little bit more expertise and a little bit more resources inside that are focused on understanding the workforce and understanding the marketplace. Um, it's still hard to change a big organization. Littler organizations are a little bit more nimble. It's easier to change them, but sometimes they don't have, um, you know, quite as much resources or expertise inside the organization that's dedicated to actually understanding those things. And, and you know, diversity and inclusion is a, is a good example of that. There's, there's definitely a, there's definitely a drop off. There's, you know, large organizations that have not only chief diversity officers, but they have whole teams of folks that do that work. Um, but, you know, you get down to a certain size, and, and that simply doesn't exist. It's it's one of many things done by someone else in HR. So I think I think all organizations are, are struggling with that a little bit, but the, but, but the kind of struggle does vary by size, it seems, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so they might have the resources to be able to move quicker, even if it's something that they might move a little bit slower at. You, I guess the, the smaller companies yeah. may not even be thinking about it or even able yep. to really tackle that at all. So yep. Uh, yep. that's yep. a good point. I, when you speak about you know diversity and inclusion, what sort of things do you work to bring into focus so that companies understand the, that this is an important thing they should be thinking about? Well, it, it really varies. Uh, depending on the audience, I think you know one of the one of the things that's kind of running in the background of, of probably all of my messages, though, is that it's it's very important to have a a a uh, an intentional and uh, proactive relationship with um, difference to, to to come to see difference as a source of value as an opportunity. A lot of organizations don't see it that way; they still think of it as a as a challenge, as a barrier, as an obstacle. When I come in to do a diversity inclusion workshop, they think I'm going to talk about how to stay out of jail or how to not get sued or how not to do the wrong things. Um, and, 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 and that, that certainly is an important part of the conversation, but I think it's a pretty small part of the work. Um, and it's not stuff that I focus on at all. The work that I do is about finding ways to actually benefit finding ways to identify advantage for us by by leveraging diversity in the workforce and in the marketplace. And I think I think that switch, um, and, and slowly more and more leaders are making it, but I think that switch is 
kind of an important thing. I think that leaders today are very quick to say that they get it because I think they're expected to get it because there's these uh, almost political expectations around the topics of diversity inclusion. But the truth is that most of them haven't sat down and spent time studying the issue and thinking about it. And so the way that they get it is not in uh, a very beneficial way. So flipping that switch, coming to see, um, and not that there's not challenges, not that it's not hard work, but rather than viewing diversity as something to overcome, seeing it as a potential source of value, uh, I think makes a pretty big difference. Yeah, and so in that regard, you either have people that get it and are going to really focus on it, or they might sort of be overlooking what uh, sort of opportunities are there, right? So it's sort of the positives they, they might get out of such a thing. Uh, do you find that can be a problem that it, that you know this these sort of topics are, are of diversity inclusion are are overlooked by a certain percentage of of the workforce out there? Oh, I think they're very overlooked. I think they're very o- overlooked. I think they're um, poorly understood. I think they're very commonly misunderstood. Um, I think this is this is a and, and you know it's partially because of the fact that this is a body of work that's uh, really still in its infancy. And it has some. It does have some weird political stuff around it, but I think it is. I, I can't think of anything that is in the workplace that's more commonly misunderstood and, and overlooked than, than this particular set of issues. But um, I, I do think uh, we are making progress. You know, there's there's this big conversation about diversity in, in tech in Silicon Valley going on now, and I don't think that conversation is going away anytime soon. There's a conversation about diversity in Hollywood. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. There's a conversation about diversity in, in government and in Washington DC and so I think that I think that you know one of the one of the positive signs even though this is I think still um, a poorly understood and often overlooked body of work one of the one of the positive things I see is that um, there are more and more people getting involved in the conversation and they're not all kind of the same type of folks they're not all diversity consultants they're not all from HR. Uh, they're from different industries and different professions, and so I think that is uh, a pretty important uh, step forward as well. But I think, I think you know, in a lot of ways, we are moving uh, in the right direction. So, what's sort of the then the the upside? What's the opportunity here for companies if they really focus on this in the right way? They treat it the right way. You know, are, are there certain things that you can sort of quantify for them or identify for them that? they might expect to see happen in their companies as a result of that focus? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a, you know, this this varies a little bit from organization and, and industry to industry, but I think there's, there's a few kind of basic fundamental things that, that as far as advantages that come along with this, um, and, and a couple of them are, are pretty simple. One of them is being able to reach out to the largest markets possible. And, and a lot of organizations, I think, make assumptions about who their clients are and who their clients aren't. Um, and I think a lot of times there's opportunities beyond that. And and so understanding an increasingly diverse and multicultural market, whether you sell to individuals, whether you sell to families, whether you sell to businesses, the you know the profile of that decision maker is changing. And it's, and it's changed quite a bit. And so it's important to understand all of the different opportunities in that market. And the, and the same thing shows up uh, on, on the talent side. Uh, the workforce is more diverse and more complex than ever before. Um, and I think most organizations, uh, if they care about talent, will want to be able to reach out to as much qualified talent as possible. Um, and I think 
that requires doing things that organizations didn't have to do in the past. It requires them to understand those markets and communicate to them uh, in, in relevant and you know, authentic ways. And so I think those two things should uh, appeal to any leader and to any organization. Um, beyond that, I think there's some pretty big uh, opportunities to, to get better performance in the workplace. Uh, on the individual level, I think um, it's fairly easy to understand that if you're providing an inclusive employee experience for your employees, you're going to get a better performance from them uh, than if they're not feeling fully included. I think you know even even some of the some of the new brain science now everyone's referring to to brain science these days, but even some of the new brain science makes it pretty clear that especially if you want me to do creative work, if you want me involved in in problem solving. Uh, the feeling of being included and valued is a, is a pretty big part of that equation. Um, if I don't feel included and valued, uh, my brain just doesn't work that way quite as easily. Um, and, and on the on the group level, there's there's very good research and quite a bit of research showing that um, if you really want smart teams, if you've got uh, decision-making to do, if you've got problem-solving to do, and you want to bring together smart teams, uh, that's really not about just grouping together um, a bunch of smart individuals. Uh, the, the real, the big variable for building a smart, talented team is bringing together groups that are different from each other, that have different identities, experiences, and perspectives, and are willing to tell that to each other out loud. They've got to be, they've got to be willing and able to disagree with each other and have healthy conflict. Um, that's at the very heart of healthy decision making and healthy problem solving. And, and as I look around at, at industry today, I see it, it seems to me that more and more organizations and more and more leaders want that. They want better solutions. They want more innovation. Um, a big part of the road there is is having the right relationship with diversity and inclusion. And I think you know, for some organizations and, and specific parts of organizations, there's other advantages to pursue as well. But those three things: the marketplace, uh, the talent pool. And the internal performance on the individual and group level, pretty clear opportunity for advantage um, uh, approach the right way. Well, and, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of different uh, sort of studies and books and thoughts on this. I mean, sort of pulling together a couple different points from multiple books, you know, uh, it, sort of the research all shows that a group of people are far more likely to solve a problem and come up with a much better solution than a lone wolf. Uh, you could have sort of this lone genius idea, and certainly then a group of diverse people that come from different, like you said, different backgrounds. That you maybe this is an engineering project, but you may have two engineers and two people in customer service and two executives, and you know, all these different right. types of people together are far, far more likely to come with a better solution than a group of, let's say, twelve engineers all sitting together and thinking thinking about the problem in the same way. So, right. You know that it, it really is almost counterintuitive sometimes. So, in some situations, and of course, when you hear that, though, and you hear the studies, then you go, "Well, duh! Of course, that makes sense." You know, having these people look at a problem and thinking about it in a different way can really, really be powerful. Um, but that's kind of just the, the beginnings, at least the, the start uh, of that inclusion process. Um, it, it does seem like maybe it'd be pretty easy for companies to. To really look for, uh, like you said, a much wider range, a broader range of people um, for them to attract into their company, um, and that may even seep into middle management. But we still seem to have a fairly non-diverse uh, group. And when we look at the C-suite, uh, I know we only got a few minutes left here. About, this is probably a, a five-hour presentation. But do you have any ideas on on why that still sort of hasn't changed as much as maybe the rest of the company has? 
Um, well, I think there's I think there's a lot of stuff that, that plays into that. Um, I but I, but I see that pretty consistently um, across industry and across geography as you move up the organizational chart. Um, typically, uh, a fair amount of the gender and racial and ethnic diversity uh, disappears. And, and I think you know um, we're working our way through the organization. Maybe maybe that's um, some of that stuff's going to come next. I think some of it will. More and more organizations are. Uh, have been getting serious about what their succession plans look like and what their pipelines look like and, 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 and looking at that through the lens of diversity. So I, I do think some progress is coming there, but I, I think, um, you know, um, what, one of the, one of the topics that is, as, has kind of blown up the past couple of years in this field is, is, uh, is really understanding bias, specifically unconscious and implicit bias. And I think, um, as, as you move up the organization and as those uh, positions become bigger, I think that bias plays even a bigger part there in, in some of those selection processes. But I think there's a number of factors that, that, that go into that. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is, uh, what book are you reading right now, and can you tell us about it? Um, yeah, you know, the, the, I, um, on, the, on the topic that I just mentioned, I'm reading a book called Implicit Bias in Philosophy. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a pretty thick one. Um, it's taken me a while to get through it, but I've been doing a fair amount of unconscious and implicit bias work over the past few years for organization, and this is uh, this is a little bit of a different approach to it. Um, it's uh, it's taking a look at some of the research on implicit bias and some of the research uh, on the brain, and kind of viewing it through a, a philosophical lens. So, like I said, it's it's uh, it's not cracking me up. It's, it's fairly deep stuff, but it's, it's been pretty interesting. Well, uh, we really appreciate you uh, being on the show today and uh, sharing your insights with us and continuing to draw, um, you know, attention and conversation to this really important topic. So I'd love to have you come back Thanks, at Trip. some point and get an update and, and continue the conversation even further. That, that'd be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, up next, after this uh, quick commercial break, we'll have uh, Wally Hawk, an employee engagement expert with uh, Optimum Leadership, uh, after this uh, quick commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. He used to pester me for a walk. Now, it's the other way around. Hoag's Physicians perform more orthopedic procedures than any other hospital in Orange County. Our orthopedic program, in fact, ranks among the top five in the entire country. So whatever it is you live for, you can get back to it sooner. Because as it turns out, the best part of life is simply living it. Hogue for life. Visit us at www.hoag.org. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can uh, find us on TalentTalkRadio.com, on uh, your iPhone or iPad in the podcast app, or, of course, any device, any platform, anywhere on iHeartRadio. Just type in Talent Talk, and you'll find us there, all of our past episodes. And listen to them whenever it's convenient for you. Um, also, don't forget, send me a question now for Wally if you have one at, uh, at PeopleG2. Use the hashtag TalentTalk if you got space there, and we'll try to feed it into our conversation here. So, uh, Wally, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks so much. Happy to be here. 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your company, uh, Optimum Leadership. Well, that's very nice. Thanks. Uh, well, um, in my 20th year, Optimum Leadership, and I help leaders to become better leaders, I help them to wake up. That's what I help them to do. I, I assert that there are, do you ever hear the phrase, uh, so many women, so little time? No, oh, of course, uh, now I'm married now, so I don't say that anymore, but... Um, <laughs> So many leaders, so little time. Uh, right. So many leaders to wake up. So uh, uh, it's my 20th year, and um, uh, I, I also uh, help with employee engagement. So I help leaders to engage employees and to uh, wake up to what they're doing and what they need to stop doing. Well, it's important work, and it's something that I'm personally spent some time talking about and I'm fascinated about and really enjoy um you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's so many different ways to think about it and to look at, but really can help uh, companies by even just doing some of the smallest things can make such a huge impact in, into their company, uh, into all the areas that they may be thinking about, whether it's attrition, whether it's hiring great people, or meeting your goals, uh, uh, all those different things. But, it's very complex. Um, very complex. Lots yeah, it's very complex, but has you know, it's one of those things that I think you spend any amount of energy towards it, and you just get so much back. Uh, that's that's always been our case. You get far more back than you ever put into it. Um, when when you have something that keeps giving you like that, it's really easy to keep keep that momentum going. So I, I know you've you've held multiple titles with Optimum Leadership. Uh, company started back in 1996. You know, what is it that drives your passion for helping and inspiring leaders to really better themselves and their businesses. And, and before you answer that one, also make sure if you can get your uh, your headset or whatever is a little bit closer. We're having a little hard time hearing you. My producer was giving me a signal here. We want to make sure everyone can hear you. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, thank you. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Thanks for that feedback. Good feedback. See, that's <laughs> what leaders, uh, good leaders need to do is to give good feedback. And uh, that's, that's what your producer did. Well, um, the, the thing that uh, really gets me up in the morning and gets me charged up is uh, working with leaders on uh, performance management. I've uh, developed a performance management system that's very, very different. And you may, if you're close to that subject, you may have noticed that there's a trend in the marketplace right now to move away from the traditional performance review. And, uh, of course, uh, Dr. W. Edward Stemming in the 1980s uh, made this uh, clear by calling the typical performance review a deadly disease. And so I like to call myself the doctor with the cure for the deadly disease because we've developed a, a process that replaces the typical performance review. And the, the typical performance review is a great metaphor for... <laughs> What is wrong with uh, organizations today? I mean, imagine for a moment, let's say you had enough money. I'd, I'd love to have enough money to, and priority to buy a, a new Ferrari. So let's say you buy a new Ferrari, right? You spend $100,000, $150,000 on this car, and then you only drive it 20 miles an hour. That's what organizations are doing with a typical appraisal. They're, they're destroying the potential of the organization uh, by utilizing that. And so now uh, there's a lot of attention on that. And that's what gets me jacked up to wake up and go talk about it. And and it's not an easy sell. It's not an easy sell to get leaders to realize that what they're doing is really damaging the organization. They may have built this Ferrari, but it's, 
it's going much slower. It's hard to prove that until you get some of this stuff out of the way. You've got to get that particular process out of the way, and then you can go faster. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely hate um, the annual review concept. Uh, we just never did it in my company just because I hated it. Um, you know, it seems like giving people, talking, having those conversations and talking about what needs to be talked about on an ongoing basis is a far better way to do it. And as we've grown, we've had to sort of formalize it a little bit because you get busy too and you forget to go back and maybe have those conversations or the next shiny object is across your desk and so you don't bring that person in when you should. But, you know, if you're not talking to your people every week or every month, I mean, I'm not really sure if you really care about engagement because <laughs> it's pretty hard to to show someone that you care when you only talk once a year and evaluate them then. You've probably forgotten 10 months of the things that they did do, good or bad. You really only remember the couple months coming in when you started paying attention. So I, I love that uh, sort of a, the example you gave there about it being sort of the, the disease and you've cleverly, you know, given yourself the title of the doctor to fix that. That's that's great. Uh, maybe what do you see are some of the keys to facilitating a change in a company's engagement and really, you know, impacting their culture? Well, I talk about two. Uh, I talk about values and systems. In fact, the leadership model that I've developed is called the values and system model. Here's how it works. Values can be defined in terms of behaviors. So there's certain behaviors that you want from people uh, in a culture, in an effective, engaged, uh, performing, high productivity, high profitability culture. There are certain behaviors you're looking for. So I like to say that you operationalize values, behaviors. So it's values, behaviors. I'll give an example. One is, why can't everybody in an organization manage their own agreements. What's an agreement? It's something specific, measurable, and time-sensitive. You and I have, um, we've only chatted for a few minutes. We've already set up a few agreements. Your, your producer called me. He said, in about three minutes, you'll be on the show. Chris will introduce you, and then you, you know, and here's the, uh, uh, here, here are some of the questions we might ask. That's all a process with certain behaviors and agreements that you and I have made. In order to make this successful, why can't everybody just be aware of and manage their agreements? So that's one of the examples of a key to a uh, culture. And when I ask that question, I'm astonished sometimes because you, uh, a leader will, will look at me like, uh, well, what do you mean they can manage their own agreements? And I call it self-management. You know, everybody, when they go home at night, when they leave work, they go home at night, they self-manage. They manage their household. They manage themselves. They manage uh, what, whatever's happening in the house. Why can't they self-manage at work? Why do we have to talk about managing people? I assert that's the wrong way of thinking. It's about managing process and context, and it's about leading people. So you, you first start with values, behaviors, and those can be defined. Those can be what I call operationalized, where they're observed. And then the second piece is uh, managing the system. And why can't everybody manage their own handoffs? And it's, it's exactly what your producer just did. It's a perfect metaphor. He just said to you, he just gave you a hand signal and said, hey, um, have Wally talk a little bit more loudly or, or put the, the headset closer to closer so that we can hear him. That's a, a handoff with feedback 
uh, the producer and, uh, is our customer, and he and and uh, and you and I are his customer. So he just gave us feedback on that handoff. Why can't everybody in an organization be doing that with their internal and external customers? So I've just oversimplified two elements, but that's what they are. It's basically just those two things. Manage your agreements and manage your handoffs and manage the variation of your handoffs. And then ask your customer, how am I doing? Do you need something more? Do you need something better? Let's brainstorm what you need. Why can't we do that? Yeah, it's a simple question to ask. I mean, so many companies don't even ask, how am I doing? And then if you do ask how you're doing, then asking, well, what else can I do for you? What else can I help you with? What else, you know, can I be providing to you? That's pretty simple feedback. Uh, it's even it's sort of feed-forward concept. And then, you know, you can make quick adjustments and, and change what you need to change very quickly instead of once a year um, and, and and really kind of impact your uh, your your you know, your own career in a positive way, your company's trajectory in a positive way, kind of everything by making those quick adjustments. But here, I, here. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, here's the problem. Let me tell you a quick story. This is one of my favorite stories that tells a true story. So I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I go there every time, every chance I get. And I would, for years, I would ask for a large cream, no sugar. About 10% of the time I get sugar. I can't drink sugar. I spend the money. I'm in the drive-thru. I give them my money. I take the cup. I drive off, I'm on my way to a client, I have an appointment, I can't go back, I take a sip, I've got sugar, oh my gosh. Now what do I do? I get upset, I get angry. Well, this one place did it to me twice in one week, so I, I, I pulled over to the side, I turned around, I drove back, I called the client, I said, look, I'm going to be a few minutes late, I'm going back there, I'm getting free coffee for the rest of my life. These people can't listen. What is their problem? Can't they just listen? No sugar? Well, on the way back there, I realized that I needed to ask the question, is this a values issue, meaning is this a break in integrity, is this a broken agreement, or is it a system or process issue? Well, clearly it's a process issue. So the question you have to ask next is, how do I change that process, and what's the first 15% of that process? Well, the first 15% is me saying the word sugar. If I don't say sugar, uh, I don't put that thought in the clerk's head. Yet, what was I going to do? I was going to go back and yell at the clerk, blame the clerk for not listening for something that I contributed to. So I changed it to just cream. That was four and a half years ago. I've gotten zero sugar in four and a half years. Why? Because I changed my process. Now, take that story and put it into an organization. Here's what typically happens with leaders. They do something unknowingly to cause confusion or problems, and then they blame the employees for that by doing a typical performance appraisal. It slows the Ferrari down to 20 miles an hour by doing that. Whereas if the leader just thought about it, for, if they thought differently about what their job is, which is to create the context, not blame the people, they would ask different questions, and that's what I do. That's what I ask leaders to do, is to ask those different questions. And they're yeah, not and, it, it. and that really gets into, you know, what is, this is sort of a, a therapy uh, uh, terminology, but, you know, what, what's my 50%? You know, what's my half that there I'm contributing go. to this equation, right? That's right. What's my 50%? Beautiful. But yeah, that's not what they and do. so they you, could, you could make a change without... 
you can't control them. You can't make them do anything any different. Your Dunkin' Donuts is probably not going to take your call if you tell them that their process sucks and they keep giving you sugar. <laughs> but what can what can you do? Well, I can stop saying the word sugar because they hear the word sugar. And so they're busy and crazy in the morning, and they're probably trying to get orders out, and they mark sugar instead of no sugar. So that, that's a great, great example. I mean, really kind of gets down to the heart of what what can I do? What, what change can I make to make this better? And then and then work from there, right? How does that change the process? And and and, and, and see, like you that's said, the it, shift in thinking. What leaders do today uh, is attempt to to control the parts. They attempt to control the clerk. Whereas, if they manage the context instead of attempting to manage the people, the people would do better better work. The people would automatically do better work. That's the shift in thinking that must happen. And we're not teaching our leaders that today. We're not really teaching systems thinking, except in very few cases. Uh, Fordham University teaches Deming theory and systems thinking. Very few organizations, very few uh, universities, and certainly not our high schools, are based on systems thinking at all. They're based on testing of the individuals that's that's the wrong way to go and it's not working yeah absolutely absolutely it's um you know and i'm not sure why that is there's probably a lot of different theories out there on why we don't sort of think that way but i know i have found success in my life because i will stop and ask that question that you asked you know well what is there, this is a process problem is this a values problem i mean i don't i'm not framing it that way but i'm using your words here Right, you know, to, to think about those things, but that is not the way in which most people think about. It. They just get angry, and they want the clerk to go back and stop putting sugar in their coffee, or they'll just go to the next place, right? It's go to the next to Dunkin' blame. Donuts or the Starbucks or whatever it may be. So, in this, this is really can go back to a, a parenting issue, to a uh, how we teach our kids in school, interactions they have on on di- with different sports or other organizations. Is what what are the lessons they're getting or the lessons they're not getting? I guess that. You know, sort of gets them to show up to the workplace then and not thinking that way. And I'm not sure if you have the answer to that or if that's a, a deeper question and about 15 books we need to read to figure figure that out. But if you have well, any have thoughts, of, I'd love I to hear part it. Of an answer. I have part of an answer. I believe, and, um, and the listeners may not agree, but I believe that what we've done in organizations is we've moved away from our basic principles that were founded uh, with our founders in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. We've moved away from those principles of freedom. Uh, When you think about the freedom, how much freedom does a student have in school? How much freedom does an employee have at work? We have policy after policy after policy that gets gets bombarded, uh, the the employees get bombarded with, and uh, policy after policy in schools. So we've moved away from what is really a, a system that is self-organizing, which is really what the Constitution set up. The Constitution set up something uh, that I call a self-organizing or self-management system. And we've moved away from that. So, and we see this in nature. So we've actually moved away from principles that work in nature. And anytime you do that, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, if you uh, think about birds flocking, they, flop, they move as one unit with no leader calling out. Why do they do that? Because they're following certain principles. Bees, uh, ants, 
you, you can point to certain things that have been very successful, like Uber. Uber is a self-organizing system. They don't tell people when to work or when not to work. They provide a structure and a context, and you can jump in and start working whenever you want. So it's self, uh, uh, self-organizing self systems based on uh, uh, sound principles that work in nature is what we need to do in organizations. We've moved away from it. And that's a pretty complex uh you know, if you look at that, there's probably lots of different uh, components of that are probably a bit too long for us to uh, to make it here with only a few minutes left of the interview. So we'll maybe leave that for next time, but uh, certainly a fascinating, you know, kind of way to look at it. You know, if we kind of turn this in, maybe back into the, the company itself and the culture, you know, very often, um, you know, it's really viewed from a top-down perspective. Um, that, you know, culture really is driven from the top-down um, set from the top down, everything is, you know, sort of, you know, if it doesn't start at, from the CEO or, or even just within a department from that particular manager's, you know, brain, it's not going to happen. So do you agree with this or is it possible for culture to be driven or created from the bottom up or through middle management or other, other sort of avenues and places where this can really occur? No, I, um, if, when you read, gosh darn, I can't remember, uh, his name, um, but the, there's a book called The Tipping Point, Gladwell, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote mm-hmm. uh, something called The Tipping Point. And The Tipping Point uh, gives us a hint that it doesn't always have to start from the top. It can start anywhere in an organization and build and gain momentum. Now, is it harder if it doesn't start from the top? Yes. Uh, might it take longer? Yes. But if you base uh, the change on certain principles, you can do it. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of my first clients uh, nearly... Uh, 20 years ago, about 16 years ago, we were talking about uh, improving leadership skills. So we did some training, and I brought all the leaders together after they had their training, and I said, you know, your your performance appraisal process is, is going to damage what we've done because we've set up a high level of trust, and now you're going to go through your performance appraisal process. It's going to damage trust. What, what could we do? And they said, well, why don't – and this was their idea. They said, why don't we – just take it, it was on a three-point scale, uh, needs improvement, average uh, performance, and exceptional performance. They said, you know what, why don't we just rate ourselves and all the staff as average performance and just hand that in, and then uh, let's not worry about it. We just we have to do it because it's a policy of the state. It happened to be a state government in uh, Delaware. And they said, let's, let's just... Uh, give everybody an average performance. We'll tell the staff what we're doing. We don't want to damage the trust. All the staff agreed. Everybody gave uh, a an average performance. So they handed that into the the director. The director gets the sixty uh, performance appraisals, and they're all average performance. <laughs> he freaked out. He said, "What are you doing? This can't possibly be true. What do you mean everybody's average performance?" And so he came back. He said, tell me what's going on here. It wasn't his idea. He didn't understand it. They explained it to him. They, they explained how and why uh, the, uh, how they had made some improvements and they didn't want to damage the trust. And he said, wow. He said, you know what? I'll support you in this. Uh, I have to be careful how I do it, but I'll support you. And they continue to do that today in this particular department. Now, uh, other departments have latched on to that same concept. Now, has it gone through the whole state government? No. So it takes longer. But you can do it. You can do it 
And if you're operating from the right principles and you, uh, and you get the engagement of the people and you involve them and you explain it to them, I assert you can do it. And that's really what consultants do anyway. Consultants very often start improvement projects in places that uh, the whole organization hasn't uh, embraced yet. Uh, I, I, have another, I have a ton of other examples that I could give you uh, where, we, where we've done that. So I'm a true believer that a leader can make a decision and can make a change right where they are, and that can grow. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, you know, one of our favorite questions, you already kind of mentioned uh, one great book, but maybe you might be reading a book now that you might want to share with us. Well, I'm, I'm rereading the Constitution, so that's one. But the other one that I'm really, uh, I've, I've got a big kick on is uh, George Washington. George Washington is is my favorite founder. And um, since I mentioned earlier the, the principles uh, that uh, the founders embraced to, to help create this, this uh, environment that created this great country, there's so many wonderful secrets there. So I'm, uh, I've gone back. I've read uh, uh, Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, and uh, and their biographies. And there's a number of biographies. Uh, I haven't read Madison yet. I'm about to do that in uh, Ben Franklin. But that's what I'm reading because it brings us back to where we really need to be. That we've we've just moved away from that, and this is why we're struggling so. Uh, so much. So I'm trying to figure out how do I, how do I send that message of success that they started, they created, and why they created it. They they were so uh, careful and clear in their logic and arguments to embrace those principles. That's what I feel like I need to do better. Well, since you're reading all those books, then I'll have a suggestion for you, and that is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by Russ Roberts. Oh, and it's a great really good uh have you read that book or i have not but i love adam smith and, yeah and so uh, it's a, a whole it's a whole kind of diving into him but it's through this author's sort of like imaginary conversation with him by the fire and talking about the two totally different books that he wrote and his whole influence on that time and so you probably find that really interesting it was a uh, a very unique read, and for anyone that enjoys that time period in the Constitution and all those different things, it's, it's it really does play well. So you may enjoy that one. How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, is that what it was? Uh, let's see. Yes, can change, yeah, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. I turned around and looked at my bookshelf and made sure, yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right, that's great. I love that. I love yeah. that. That's next. So how can uh, people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about your services? Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, com, and uh, there's uh, books on there. There's videos. Uh, there's an interview about my latest book, Stop the Leadership Malpractice. I call it Leadership Malpractice, Embracing the Typical Appraisal. How do you replace the typical appraisal? So that, that interview is up there. So it's com, W-A-L-L-Y-H-A-U-C-K.com, and uh, all the contact information, and uh, there's a lot of good information on there, Chris. Thanks. Well, Wally, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today. We've kind of hit a lot of different things that certainly we could have gone much deeper in. So love to have you come back at some point and be our guest again on the show. And, again, thank you for being here. Love to come back. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. For all of you listening, hopefully you gained uh, something that you can uh, take back with you and use your own career or even today in your in your office or whatever work you're doing. Uh, next week, our guests will include uh, Carrie uh, 
Gauzerwaski, the VP of HR for Park Square Homes, um, and then Ryan Naylor, founder and CEO of LocalWork.com. So between now and then, uh, don't forget to check out our previous shows on iTunes and iHeart or TalentTalkRadio.com. And then uh, make sure you do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.